I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I am really delighted to be joined today by Catherine Heine. She's the author of Standard Deviation and Single Carefree Mellow, and her short fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and many other magazines. And her new novel is called Early Morning Riser, and it is just a joy. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start with Lori Colwyn because you have just written a new introduction to a new edition of Happy All the Time. And I feel like there is going to be a great resurgence of Lori Colwyn in the discourse. And it's so very clear how influenced by her you, you've been. She's really amazing. And um, I started, I first started reading her when I was maybe 20 years old and just starting to think about becoming a writer. and. I think one of the beauties of Laurie Coleman is you can read her at any point in your life and, and you feel like she's speaking about that particular time. And she just says so many things that are true, but they're funny because they're true. Like about how her favorite moment of any dinner party is, is the moment when everyone leaves. <laughs> she's very special to me. Her work is amazing. And I feel like her name has come up a lot when I've given out book recommendations and people, people have a desire, which I understand so, so much to read something joyful and to read something that is not gonna bring them down. And, and it's hard to find lots of great books that, that do that. And she, so her name first came up and then your name follows. Oh, how flattering. Yeah. So, so talk to me about that. Like, tell me about writing, quote unquote, uplifting books that aren't corny and that they're, they're true to life, but, but there's, there's a, a happy tint to them. 
Well, I didn't start out to write a book that was really going to be warm and happy. I just started writing about these characters, but I became so invested in them and um, they were so important to me. And it was almost like they were real people and I wanted only good things for them. So even though like a lot of, uh, there's a lot of adversity in their lives. Um, my husband was talking about some TED talk about like um, how video games are actually a good metaphor for life because in a video game, um, you don't go from to the next level or you don't finish the game by rising straight up. So the graph is very bumpy and you fall in creeks and you get killed by people and um, there are dangers everywhere. And that's what makes video games um, addictive and enjoyable. And it's the same way with life. You don't get go straight from A to Z. I mean, I guess some really lucky. Yeah. I don't know them. Do. <laughs> but um, so in writing the book, I really wanted to write about Jane, the main character, and how she sort of gets what she wants, but in a very different form and how maybe that's better. Mm -hmm. And I think that Holwyn does a lot with the book that I wrote the introduction to is Happy All the Time, which I would be scared to call a book happy all the time <laughs> for fear that all the book critics would be like, I was unhappy all the time <laughs> I was reading this. But Lori Colwyn was very um, fearless. And so really that book is, is she states in the first few pages, these are the two cousins and this is the story of how they get married. And it's sort of almost throwing down a gauntlet to the reader being like, but it's gonna be good, so keep reading. <laughs> her confidence is really, really amazing. Yeah, and I, I love how in Early Morning Riser, I can see the video game aspect of it in that you, start in the year 2002, and then you kind of check in on these characters every couple of years. And um, one of the joys of reading the book is, is finding out where they are and, and what's happened to them and, and how their goals have changed in the meantime. Well, the structure of the book was sort of accidental because I was writing and then I kept coming up against um, sort of, structural issues of like, well, I want this to be, I know that that when Jane and Duncan break up, she goes two years before they get back together. And I, there was a certain amount of time I wanted Jimmy to live on his own. And I knew right from the start that Jane was gonna have children. So eventually it just became like, I was like, I'm getting so confused. I have to write this all down. And I also had to write everybody's ages because I'm really, really bad at math. So originally I had a piece of paper that said the year they were born, but literally like Duncan would be born in 1960 and it'd be the year 2000. And I'd be like, I have no idea how old he is. <laughs> My math skills are so bad. Um, so that, that kind of became one of the pleasures of writing it was, as you say, like checking back in with them. And there were times where information that 
stuff that happened between chapters, I kind of wanted to include, like I knew it, but there was no way to fit it in. So it sort of forced me to be a little more editorial, I guess. Yeah. So. Yeah. Choosing what, what to tell us and what to leave out it must, I mean, I imagine that with these characters, you've created a whole world that they, they live in and choosing what to tell us is, is an art. And I love the idea of, of course, you couldn't call any book right now happy all the time, partly because I think people would call you out for saying this, this isn't a happy book or no one's happy all the time. And um, that's the point of the title, right? Like, yeah, exactly. In Early Morning Riser, of course, Jane and Duncan and Jimmy, uh, the three main characters, I would say, do not have perfect lives and they are faced with challenges all the time and life is unfair but but you make you give them such optimism or you give the reader such optimism in in reading about them tell me about that i think a lot of it is that they have no other choice like what are they gonna do just stop existing um and i think that duncan is a flawed character or he has many um, areas for improvement sure. as a person. Um, but I think one of his really great, great qualities is he just, he's really, really flexible. He just goes with what he makes the decision and he does it. And that's why I think he ends up being um, a really good husband. He likes doing errands. <laughs> I know. Who even? Um, and I, I like that in the world of the book, Jane can meet Duncan and you would know the age difference better than I. <laughs> but in the world of the book, no one's talking about power and differences or, you know, is it appropriate that he's dating a younger woman? Like this is just assumed that he's like, that this relationship is solid. Fair? Um, assumed by other people? Yes. Yeah. Assumed by the reader? The reader. Um, I think the reader probably questions it more that the whole of Boyne City knows that Duncan is like this serial monogamist. And um, it's only Jane that thinks this is going to be different. So I think probably the town approves of her being young because they're like, she'll have her years with Duncan and then she'll move on and she'll still be young enough to find somebody else, somebody who will actually marry her. And, and tell me about Boyne City and, and bringing to life uh, a town full of, my favorite kind of small town, full of quirky, funny individuals who, yeah, are sometimes judgmental. Well, I... I grew up in Michigan and we always um, went on vacation in or near Boyne City. And then when I got married, my husband and I um, lived abroad for many years, um, but we still came back to Michigan and we decided to buy a house there to sort of, so our sons would have some stability. Mm -hmm. My older son was in the second grade before he went to the same school twice like, because we moved so much. I'm like, I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, so it became this, this um, 
so we, we began spending every summer there. So it, it became really like we lived the whole year in the time span of a summer. I'm not saying that very articulately. No, that makes sense. It's this really beautiful small town and it's on Lake Charlevoix and there are many beaches and I think the sunsets there are, are the most beautiful of anywhere in the world. And actually when I finished the book, I had to go back through and take out like some sunsets because there were <laughs> too many sunsets. every other page. Um, <laughs> but it has such, um, such special meaning to me. And both my sons took their first steps there when they were babies. And my younger son took his first steps in a bar, actually <laughs> in the sportsman, which is talked about in the book. Yeah. And um, it was during the daytime. It was, you know, it wasn't quite, it was more wholesome than it sounds. Although <laughs> later we were, we were like, he probably just wanted to walk so he didn't have to crawl on the super sticky, beer-soaked <laughs> floor. Um, but it's, it's very much a small town in that, um, people's, it's just a slower pace of life. I shouldn't even say slower. It's a more, I think it's a more gracious pace of life. And, and there's a lot of patience. And, um, one year my sons, um, interviewed at, um, Boyne City Pizza and, the manager asked my older son how fast he was on a scale of one to 10. And my son thought about it for a long time and said, maybe a 5.5. And he still got the job. <laughs> <laughs> Anything like, higher than a five at that point. <laughs> I know I was pretty impressed. I'm like, Ooh, I might not even go that high, but, um, um, and there are just, there's so many things like on the 4th of July, um, all, everybody goes down to the beach, to Peninsula Beach to watch the fireworks. And there's a beach and there's a playground and it has a merry-go-round. And on the 4th of July, like 70 kids get on it and the big kids push it till it's oh. going like so fast, it's like a class action lawsuit waiting in the form of a merry-go-round. But um, it was something my, my sons looked forward to and talked about the whole year. It was like 4th of July in Boyne City. It's, I don't feel like I'm describing it ac accurately. It's such a lovely place. It's so dear to me. Well, I mean, I, I certainly get that impression from reading the book and the, your generosity to your characters who then in turn are so generous in their, with their time and their worldviews is, is just, I guess that's a huge part of, of, of having a book feel warm. I'm in New York City right now and my life is fast paced even though it's mostly from my home <laughs> right now. And there is something so calming about being inside the world of your book and, and being in this small town in Michigan. And, and, and you, you evoke that. Tell me a little bit about, from a craft perspective, 
how to convey that kind of everyday generosity, I guess. It really was like when every summer when we would go there, it was really like um, a sort of transition or like you sort of enter this other dimension. And I remember one year we were living in London and we went to Boyne City and the first day we went to this barbecue restaurant downtown and we drove and we were like nine blocks away. And I was like, there's a parking space. We have to take it. <laughs> like, they have a parking lot. And if, and if they don't, there's like a hundred space. But I was, I was so caught up in London, which is just like, you know, you think about parking legit all the time. Um, and there's this sort of thing that happens in Boyne City where um, people talk all the time about the neighboring towns. Yeah. And they're always like, oh, she works over in Charlevoix or he's the teacher over in Manistee. Um, and I've never lived anywhere where that was such a thing. Um, and it's almost like, like people have to pre present their bona fides in a way. Like, sure. like <laughs> they live in Boyne City, but they go shopping in Petoskey. There's this sort of difference. And we used to use, um, a series of babysitters for my sons, um, just local teenage girls that we would hire. And one year, the, the one we wanted couldn't come for some reason. So she sent her sister who was, who was both younger and shorter than my boys, which was really, really funny. That's funny. But like, as soon as we got to town and the boys were playing out in the yard, the babysitters would start calling us saying, I see you're back in town. Do you need a babysitter? There's very much this sense that people are keeping an eye on you. And there's very much a sense of, of everybody knows everybody else's business. Sure. And sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes that's a bad thing. And I think that's really something I exaggerated in the book for effect. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that. Um, everyone moonlights in the book. So like, if you go to the store, you know the clerk from like three other places where they work. Um, I don't know that that's, that's a real thing. Uh -huh. um, that, that I just sort of came up with to make that day like a little bit more surreal for Jane, but, um, but it's definitely true for some extent. Yeah, I, I was thinking about how I would hate for this movie, I mean, for this book to be adapted into a film, not because I, I would like for you to get a big payout. That's not what I'm saying, but like your descriptions um, of the characters and their clothing are so peculiar that I almost feel like it would ruin it to, to actually have to see a person in, in the role of Jane, say. There's, especially in the beginning, there's an omniscient narrator who is telling us how Jane really looks in her thrift store outfits. Yeah, um, I like to write about what people are wearing a lot, mm -hmm. which is hilarious considering I wear yoga pants and a sweatshirt <laughs> every single day of my life. One of my favorite books is Gone with the Wind. And early on in Gone with the Wind, Scarlet, tries on all these dresses and like rejects them one by one. And that's really one of my favorite scenes. So I like to write about what people are wearing and I like to write about what people are eating. 
Mm-hmm. Those, mm-hmm. I have to edit those things down a little bit, but um, sort of as when I was starting to write the novel, that was when my, my real love of thrift stores was born. Mm-hmm. So one of the beauties, one of the great things about writing a novel is that you start to see the world through the lens of your novel. Because yeah. I was like, well, I like thrift stores, so Jane will like them, and that will be, that will be really great. And I, I was never entirely sure if this omniscient narrator was being accurate. Like, I, I kept thinking, like, there's what Jane thinks she looks like and what the narrator says she looks like, and then there's probably a third of what she really looks like, quote-unquote, to the reader. Yeah, I, I think that the omniscient narrator is, um, is almost like if Jane were narrating the book, <laughs> as a, a dual role as a character and the narrator, because I feel that narration is so close to Jane. Yeah, Um, that is almost impossible to separate that. But there are a couple of times where like there's a time where where she wears a sort of I think it's like a velvet black pantsuit (laughs) for store and the narrator says she looks sort of like an undertaker. (laughs) And I just think that's that's really true. When you go back and look at photos, you're like, wow, I thought I looked great that night. What was up with, you know, this weird ribbon? So, um, and I also wanted it to be, I wanted to, Jane's looks to be, you know, a little bit up and down. I wanted her to be real. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then in contrast, Duncan's ex-wife, Aggie, is um, just perfectly elegant. And her outfits, tell me about her, tell me about how you came up with her look and how she would be. Well, it's really weird because Aggie is a really bossy, passive aggressive character. And she sort of came into my mind fully formed and like bossing me around. (laughs) There was something, there's a line that she said a certain way near the end of the book that was slightly ungrammatical and every copy editor flagged it and I kept saying it's intentional and and you know finally they were like this is really distracting everybody I think you should change it I'm like Aggie will be mad at me okay (laughs) I've heard Aggie say this um so she you know just in when I was first writing it she showed up I made her a real estate agent just as a sort of arbitrary, I'm like, she needs a career. Mm-hmm. And then that became such a big part of her character and her arc through the novel. And um, I wanted her to be, um, to be not the opposite of Jane in looks because they're both blonde. Yeah. And, um, I felt it would be too easy if I made Aggie just like, you know, the complete opposite. And Veronica I think, to her I think Betty. Is, oh, sorry, what did you say? I said the Veronica to her Betty. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I think that Aggie is actually prettier than most people think because her bossiness stands in the way of her attractiveness. Yeah, but she's a great cook. <laughs> is a great cook and and she winds up being 
like sort of a good friend. Like I wound up not sort of of baggy, although she would drive me so crazy. I mean, so Jane and Duncan acquire this kind of chosen family. Mm-hmm. And and there are some some weirdos in the group. <laughs> but you you endow just about all of them with some sense of grace perhaps. Like even Jane's mother is like as close you, as you can get to like a straight villain and yet she also has her her moments. Um, I really liked Jane's mother. A lot of people I know have not liked her. Um, (laughs) To me, um, Jane's mother um, and Gary and Jane's daughter Patrice, Mm -hmm. they were like gifts I gave myself. Like whenever there was a reason for them to be on the page, I was so happy. Like they just can, they can be funny. And I guess it was very important to me that Jane's mother have a little, a little bit of a, of redemption hmm. as a character. Yeah. And Gary is just like, I was trying to diagnose him. <laughs> There's um, some OCD in there. <laughs> yeah, it was. After my my agent read the book, she was like, what exactly is wrong with Gary? And I said that I think he'd been infantilized by living with Aggie for so long. Mm. But I think it's also, um, it was very important to me to include the line where Jane says, nobody really knows what's wrong with Gary. It started part of the small town thing of mm-hmm. like, Gary's just Gary and we all everybody deals with him and thank god we're not married (laughs) just keeping track of his likes and dislikes would be emotionally exhausting well early on i showed a chapter to a friend of mine and he said that he thought that aggie talked about gary's likes and dislikes as a way to make gary sound more interesting than he is (laughs) And so that made me want Gary to have like even more likes and dislikes. I love it. And definitely there's a chapter in the book where where Jane has to care for both children plus Jimmy plus Gary. And it was never a consideration for me not to have Gary there as somebody she had to take care of. <laughs> and And that's like, you know, that's like a real climax of the book. <laughs> poor Jane let's talk about Jimmy just for a moment because we haven't really gotten to him yet and Jimmy is starts as Duncan's assistant in his workshop and he's mentally disabled Uh but once again you don't go that much more into detail about what the doctors say or like what his prognosis is? Well, I think that was deliberate because Mm -hmm. I think that Jimmy grew up in such a small town and at a time where people were not about 
diagnosing intellectual disabilities, disabilities or learning disabilities. It was like the whole town calls Jimmy slow learning. Right. And, and that's not for most people. That's like, that's all we need to know. And Jimmy sort of came about accidentally in the first chapter because I knew that um, Duncan runs this woodworking business, but I knew from the start he would be really sort of hopeless at it and only do the parts that he wanted to. And I wanted to him to have an assistant, but I was like, well, he's not going to have a real go-getter assistant because right. the place is barely functional. Um, so it came to me that he would have this sort of slow learning guy. And then um, Jimmy just sort of took over the book from there. And it was very, very important to me that Jimmy be um, a kind and decent, complex person worthy of love, that he wouldn't, that the town has not seen him accurately all these years. They've only seen him as slow learning. And he's so much more than that. And that's what a part and such a big part of ableism is to see someone just as their disability. Yeah. Um, and, and I love how through Jane, we can kind of pin our hopes and dreams for him. Um, and then we can kind of be pulled back in and, but, sorry, let me try that again. Through Jane, the reader can kind of project their hopes and dreams for Jimmy. And then we can be pulled back a little bit to see that it's okay if his hopes and dreams aren't the same. That um, what we and Jane want for him is not relevant to his emotional life. Yeah, and I think that that's something that um, at least I had to learn as a parent mm. is like, I remember my husband and I going to tour a school that we were thinking of sending the boys to. And like, we left and we were all, you know, jazzed up about it and how great it was. But like on the drive home, we realized it was, we would have loved to go there as students because that's kind of students we were, but would our boys love that? Maybe not. And right. it's, I think it's very hard as a parent not to, not to assume your children are just like you and are going to have the same hopes and dreams. And I think that, you know, Jane does become Jimmy's mother in so many ways. I think that's part of what she goes through. Hmm. And I also think that she's maybe a better mother to her own daughters because she's had the practice with Jimmy. Right, right. Well, Catherine, this has been so wonderful. Uh, before we go, um, will you recommend some books for us? Oh, I would love to. And one actually um, has this very funny story of, um, I went to college at the University of Kansas. And um, a couple months ago, I was on Facebook on my phone and it said, people you might know. And there was this tiny little thumbnail of, picture of a guy and I was like oh my god 
I sat behind him in um, history class at KU and he had the most beautiful handwriting. And then I saw him drunk at a party in an elevator <laughs> and I told him he had the most beautiful handwriting and he just looked like scared to death. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I reached out to him on Facebook and um, I was right, that's who he was. And, or is, I should say. And, um, it turns out that he's a poet and he has a book of poetry coming out in June called Worldly Things. And it's so good and it's luminous and it's sad and it's funny. And it makes you think it's like all the things that poetry should be and yeah. sometimes isn't. Um, so I really can't, recommended enough. His name is, is Michael Kleber Diggs. And um, it's also a way that KU is still enriching my life Aww. all these years later. Um, uh, I also read a book um, for the first part of lockdown. I could only read The Little House on the Prairie. Mm -hmm. And then I read um, Notes on a Silencing by Lacey Crawford. Yeah. And it was so beautifully written and so haunting and so inspiring and and so everything that it it sort of single-handedly pulled me out of my little house in the prairie reading <laughs> and I fangirled completely all over her Facebook page and she was so lovely and so gracious and um I think everybody should read that book it's so amazing yes. have you read it yes She's been a guest on this show, in fact, and she is amazing. She really is. Um, and then the other book I really liked um, sort of recently within the last year is Exciting Times by Nisha Dolan. Mm. Um, it's just really, really funny. It made me laugh out loud in a lot of places. And I would sort of follow my husband around the house reading parts out to him even if he had his headphones on, you know, it's just, I'm still, and this is so good. I have to read it out loud. Well, that's what I did um, to my husband with your book. So I think that's oh, perfect. Well, no higher compliment. <laughs> Thank you so much, Catherine. Anytime. This was really great. Really fun. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.